Amen. You can be seated. Um, as we've already said, it is a joy to be with God's people in this place today and to be rejoicing over the same thing. That all of us stood in the same place that we had a great need and it's been sufficiently met through Jesus' work. And so today we have another reason to rejoice too. Um, Byron and Lauren Knight have had their baby. This Byron is on staff here. And if you don't know him, you need to know him. Little Ellis Penny Knight was born on, on Friday and um, she's a very small little baby. So she's going to be a NICU for a, a little while longer. So if you would pray for them, but we're certainly rejoicing with them and missing them this morning. All of us have a few more things on our minds and a few more plates spinning because we realize like how much Byron Knight does around this place. He's our church administrator. He hands all the media. And so um, we're, we're very grateful for him and missing him this morning. And I, I want to encourage you to pray for them as they go through recovery and and await their little baby coming home. So recap real quick. Last week, we started a sermon series in the book of 1 Thessalonians. And so that's where we're going to be this week and for the next 10 weeks at least walking through this book of the Bible. It tells us this story of how this church is planted in Acts chapter 17. So that's where we were last week. And if you aren't here, I just want to give a quick recap of how this church came to be. Um, Paul and his two companions, Silas and Timothy, are traveling around and they're telling people about the gospel of Jesus Christ. They come to this town um, because they're being persecuted. They land there. They help the church for about three, three and a half weeks. That's how much we know. They were there for three Sabbaths. So for a very short period of time, they're able to invest the gospel with a specific group of people. And then they're run out of town because of an angry mob saying they're disturbing the peace. And they cannot bear it any longer. It says later in in 1 Thessalonians that Paul is just, he's so anxious to find out how they're doing. Are they okay? He's left these brand new believers behind and he's wondering, are they all right? Are they going to make it? Is that seed of the gospel surviving? Has it uh, sprung forth in roots and fruits? And so he's wondering, he sends Timothy back and Timothy brings word back to him and he says, look, they're doing great. And so that's how we begin 1 Thessalonians. He's saying, oh my goodness, I am so relieved that you guys are doing okay. And that's where we pick up in chapter one, verse two. He's still expressing his thanksgiving, his relief, his joy that this group of believers is not just doing okay, they're doing great. There's a few things he's going to instruct them about later in the book, but ultimately he's just relieved. And we're going to find out today in this passage, why would he be relieved? And so let's ask God to speak to us through his word. It's also going to be on the screen. We're going to be in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, starting in verse 2. We give thanks to God always for you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers. Remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. For we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. You know what kind of men we prove to be among you for your sake. This is the word of the Lord. 
Let's pray together. Father, thank you that you are worth listening to this morning, that your spirit still works through the proclamation of this good news, the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so we ask God that you would come not just through these words, but you would come with power and your Holy Spirit would bring these words to life, that they would shine light into our hearts and that we would respond with full conviction, with full joy, that we would respond with yes to whatever this word would call us to today. And today I pray that people that walk in this room may be feeling very unloved or unlovely would go away realizing the great depth of love that you've displayed through the cross. I pray that you do that um, for your namesake, Lord, and for your glory, and that we would respond with thanksgiving and joy that you are still at work among us, that you're still accomplishing your purposes for your name. And I pray all of this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Ultimately, there's one big question that Paul had. Are they doing okay? His response is thanksgiving and relief. And today, this passage of scripture is going to, uh, it's going to inform us on why he would be relieved. Why is he relieved? And so we're going to see two things. First, his prayer of thanksgiving and his longing for them, his hope for them. And then also his, his complete conviction and confidence that they actually were saved, that God had come and he had redeemed them and rescued them. And so we want to look at what the scripture is saying first, that how can we know that someone is genuinely in the faith of Jesus Christ? He's confident about it. So let's look at his prayer and then look at his confidence and first with his prayer. He begins by expressing gratitude. He's giving thanks. Yes, I'm so grateful when I hear about you. And every time I mention you, the first thing that comes into his mind is gratitude. He's so happy about God's work in them and for them and what God has accomplished for them in the gospel and what God is still accomplishing for them. And so what if we prayed the faithfulness for those around us and we heard of their faithfulness? That would be our response. We hear about it and we're saying, oh my goodness, I'm so thankful. Today, there's someone who's here today that's married to someone who was in my youth group and from 15 years ago, which is so awesome because I love to hear people from a very, very long time ago and their faithfulness today, that they're still walking with Jesus, that they still love him and that they're still abiding in him. That's the kind of thing that Paul was grateful for. He was so glad and relieved that this group of people was still walking with the Lord. He's thankful for this church and for all that was happening and for what would happen. And so he not only is grateful, he continues to constantly mention them in his prayers. So he's not just thankful. He's prayerful. He's hopeful about what God would accomplish. And all the things that he's going to list in these three things are, are works that have happened and they're ongoing. It's something that has begun, but it's not complete. So he lists three things, a work of faith, labor of love, and their endurance of hope. Let's look at each of those. First, their work of faith. They were believing and their belief, the result of that belief was they had begun this work of faith. They were not just participants and recipients of God's gospel. They were participating in the body of Christ in this church in Thessalonica. It was a work of faith. And that work has to be motivated by something other than your strong will. It has to be motivated by where their faith was placed in the gospel. And not only did did they have this work of faith, they had a labor of love. They were engaged in loving one another. Their labor for the sake of the gospel was motivated by love and affection that had first come from God, which we're going to look at in just a moment. But it also was distributed through them to one another. They had a labor of love. Their love was shaping the way that they did things with the people around them. And he was praying every day that this work that had begun would continue, that the love that had begun would continue, that their endurance of hope, that's the third thing that he prays, 
They were enduring in the midst of great hardship. Last week, we talked about how they were persecuted right from the beginning. They were born straight into persecution. There were people surrounding the house and wondering where they were and stirring up an angry mob against them. And in the midst of that, these people had not just stopped following Jesus. They had endured. And he's praying, God, let them endure with hope. He's thankful that they're enduring and he's praying that they would endure. In the midst of this hardship, they had continued in the faith. And so that's the regular pattern for Paul. That's what you see over and over and over. As he opens up these letters to different churches and places that he had visited, he was thankful for God's work and he was hopeful that God would continue it. And the same could be true of us today, that, that for all the ways that we've seen God at work among us, then we should return thanks to him and say, God, you're responsible for that. You're responsible for all the good things that are happening. And we're hopeful that he would continue the work that's begun. And so before we move on, I want to I consider what it means that Paul would have been thankful for them. He had a holy ambition for this group of people. He knew that the work that he'd invested was not in vain. And that's how he's going to dis- describe his ministry in the coming chapters. He knows and is convinced that it's not in vain. And when he gives thanks, he's not thankful for the work that he had done. He wasn't patting himself on the back saying, I'm so glad I came to you and I'm so glad that I preached the gospel to you and that you received it. He's thankful for the work that God has accomplished. Now, when you have this kind of holy ambition for yourself and for others, and I would say that God wants us to have that. He wants us to long for his work to be realized among us, that he would want us to long for his kingdom coming on earth. When you have that kind of holy ambition, there's a couple of ways that you can pursue it, okay? First way is to just have some hard work and determination and as much as you can muster, pull yourself up from your bootstraps and say, we're gonna get it done. And if that's the case, uh, you're going to have yourself to thank and you can pat yourself on the back at the end of the day and you may or may not get what you want, but I promise what you're gonna get is a lot of exhaustion. Paul's cooperation with God was full of dependence and prayer. And so the way that he saw the church with this, with holy ambition and saying, God, I know who they could be. He was thankful because God was at work. And so it wasn't me. It didn't mean that he did not work. He worked harder than everyone. That's how he described himself. But he worked with a complete dependence on God through prayer. It still included a lot of work, but it it was God who he thanked at the end of the day. It was God who gets the glory for everything that he had accomplished through the church. And whatever the outcome was, he was looking to God as the author and perfecter of all the faith. And so there's two ways to approach this kind of work. In A Praying Life, Paul Miller describes it this way. It's gonna be on the screen. Self-will and prayer are both ways of getting things done. At the center of self-will is me carving a world in my image. But at the center of prayer is God carving in me in his son's image. And so I want to encourage us to see the necessity of prayer in his thankfulness and his gratitude and his constant mentioning of them in prayer, the primary concerns that he had was an invitation to see God's intervention on their behalf. So his concerns for God's people was not uh, disconnected from God himself. And so when you bring your frustrations with yourself, with the world around you before God, it's a way of saying, hey, you know what? I acknowledge that I'm not in control of this. I acknowledge that I cannot ultimately determine the outcome of whatever it is that's going around, on around you. 
And so if you bring your longing, your holy ambition to God, it doesn't mean that you're not gonna have to work, but what it means is God is going to accomplish that work through us. And so eventually, if you trust in yourself, you're going to be crushed under the weight of the things that only God can control. Many of you probably are struggling with anxiety. It's just a guess. And if I had to guess, a lot of you probably struggle with anxiety and you look at the world around you and say, how can I possibly handle what's been given to me to handle? But I can tell you what Paul did here. He was constantly making mention of this people that he cared about to God. It trains our dependence on God. It trains us to remove all delusions of control that we have. Prayer is the means by which God has ordained to work into the world. And so thankfulness, it reveals who we think is responsible and dependence reveals who we think can accomplish things. And so for us at the end of the day, my hope is that we would be a people of prayer because if we wanna build a nice movement, a good tidy church with a good yard, then we should get to work. But if we want God to unleash his power in this generation, then we need to commit ourselves first to prayer, the work of faith, the labor of love that's begun, and an endurance of hope. God, God is saying, and Paul is saying, look at the work that's been accomplished. Ultimately, we have God to thank. And it's through this prayer that we can have him to thank in the future for all that he's gonna accomplish. So that's his prayer. It's full of thanksgiving and hope. And then he moves on to his confidence. Look at what he says. He's, I'm convinced you're loved by God and you've been chosen by him. And then he lays out what their salvation looked like. First, God's love. God had set his affection on this group of people. And I do not want to miss this great encouragement for everyone who's trusting in Jesus Christ. That the first thing that Paul would use to describe them, the the banner that he has over their life is that they are loved by God. And there's a few ways that God has demonstrated his love for us, none more powerful than in our redemption. It says in Romans chapter five, verse eight, that God demonstrates his love towards us. And while that we were still sinners, Christ, died for us. And so the first way that God has demonstrated his love is through the gospel. He's shown us that we've been adopted into his family by what Christ was willing to pay on our behalf. Central to God's word being proclaimed to them is that God is not indifferent to them. Central to the proclamation of the gospel would be this, that God has an affection for everyone who's his child. He has an affection that, that, that made him go to the great cost of the cross that he would look at us and say, this is my child. And it changes everything about our future and our past that God would set his affection on us. It changes the way that we enter into the world. And now for those of you who are like, yep, yep, got it, I've got it. There's a a way in which, especially uh, in the cultural South, in the church, that we can get so familiar with the transaction of God's love for us and the reality that Christ died for us, that it feels like some past tense reality. And so what I want you to pause and consider today is not just what this accomplished in your standing before God, but in what it accomplished in his uh, determination to put his affections on you right now, today that even today that he still would go to the cross for you. Yes, he's lo- you're loved by God because of his redemption, because of your re- rescue before him. He's also loving you through his faithfulness today to you. 
in his faithfulness, some of you might be feeling, hey, I am really far from God and I don't know how I even landed in this this place today. Um, I just wanna remind you that God has promised not only to be faithful in your salvation, but he's promised to be faithful today in his affections for you. That it wasn't because of your high that he chose you. John Flavel says it like this, it'll be on the screen. As God did not first choose you because you were high, so he will not forsake you because you are low. Those of you who've wandered away, or maybe you're still wandering, I just want you to know that God is so very faithful. He's faithful to you because he's so faithful to his own heart. He cannot deny himself. The way that the scripture uh, describes him is that he's love. God is love. And so he's faithful to you in his love and salvation. He's faithful today in his love to you as he pursues you, no matter how far you are from him. And then lastly, he's faithful in his love to you in his delight in you. He delights in his children. In 1 John chapter three, it says this, see what kind of love the father has given to us that we should be called children of God. And so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. In other words, he set the kind of affection that a father sets on his children. They did not choose to be loved by their father, but he's a good father who loves and affirms. It changes everything. It changes the way that you enter into the world. If you believe that this is the banner over you, that God indeed loves you, It means that the need that you have for love, you don't have to bring to the people around you. The question of if you're enough, if you're loved, it's answered ultimately through Jesus Christ. You don't have to bring that question to the people in your family, the people at your work. You don't have to bring that question to your career. You don't have to bring that question to all the places that we might seek to answer it. Am I enough? Christ has answered it ultimately through the cross and through his faithfulness to you, through his affections for you. And that love that you have for other believers, what if you entered into every gathering of God's people looking around and saying, loved by God, loved by God. Every person who belongs to him, you can see that banner just written over their lives and it changes the way that you interact with them. For the people that you don't care about, (laughs) for the people who you wonder if God cares about, For those of you uh, who maybe they belong to Christ, but you find them a struggle to belong to, it would change the way that you engage with them if you saw this first over their lives, loved by God, that God did the choosing of them, not by any merit of their own, but because of his affections, because he designed them specifically to reflect some characteristic of his nature, that every person created in God's image, there's a way in which they were made by him to be adored by him, to reflect who he is to the world. And so in all of those places, God puts this over our lives. God indeed loves us. And I don't want to skip over it. His rescue, his faithfulness, rivers of ink has been spilled over this and all of them worthy words for us to consider. The importance of that reality that he set his affections on everyone who would believe, it demonstrates his love through Jesus Christ. And he's looking, he's looking, Lord, how do I know that these people are chosen? And then he begins to explain it. Paul begins to explain the confidence that he has in their salvation. First, he describes it like this. He said, the word did not come in word only. The gospel didn't come to you only in word. And I don't want us to miss that as a warning. 
because if anywhere in the world this is a risk, it's a risk right here, okay? Maybe in this church, definitely in this city, definitely in the South. This is the risk that we would receive this as cognitive words without it permeating the reality of our lives. This group of people had the real thing and he's going to describe why they had the real thing. Before I move on to what it is, I would never wanna give anyone a false assurance of your faith based on what you're doing or not doing. I'm gonna point out what he describes, these authentic believers, and I think we should hold up the word so that we could be evaluated from it and say, Lord, do I have an authentic faith in you? Does it look like I'm loved by you? Does my, my life reflect, reflect this reality that you've set your affections on me? And that's ultimately the question he's answering. The evidence that you are loved by God, it is on full display. You didn't just receive this in word only. And then he names three ways, in power, in the Holy Spirit, and with full conviction. First, with power. It means that, that when they heard the word, it wasn't just like words, there was something happening in their hearts. Something was revealed about the necessity of the cross. When Paul declared the gospel of Jesus Christ, it says that he declared the necessity of Christ's death. And for everyone who receives the gospel with power, there's something at work with the proclamation of that word. When you hear the necessity of the death of Christ, you recognize that it was for you. So it came with great power. It came with the Holy Spirit. They weren't just words. The power was there because God was present with the words. Now, I don't know how this works, but somehow in the proclamation of the gospel, the Holy Spirit has chosen to unveil himself to the world, to transform hearts from dead to alive, from cold, stony hearts to good, fertile soil for the gospel to permeate and take root. Somehow through the proclamation of this, this gospel, the Holy Spirit was working. It was in it, the Holy Spirit had the power to transform people. And the way that they were transformed was with full conviction. That's how he describes them. They were not just temporarily moved by the truth of what Christ had accomplished for them. Their lives were different. And one of the ways that their lives were different is they were willing to suffer for it immediately. So there's three evidences of power of God's spirit and presence in the words and in their salvation, that they were fully convicted. They, they knew that these words mattered. They mattered enough to raise the stakes. They were, there was more at stake in their belief of this than their temporary safety. They were willing to endure angry mobs for the sake of this truth. There was more in, at stake than their comforts with receiving it. There was more at stake than their reputation. Some of them would have lost their reputation because of this. And so if all of these things are true, the invitation for us is this, have we received more than words? And that's my question for us today. Have we received more than words? Because this message was received by this faithful group of people and the first way that he describes them is they're loved by God. Is there evidence that you've been loved? Are you bringing that need to be loved to everyone around you? And for us, the, one of the ways that we know is that we have full conviction. There, we know that there's more at stake. Have you received more than just words? Not message only. Uh, there's a lot of talk about vaccinations lately, right? And herd immunity and how we can be immune to things. 
Um, long before COVID-19 happened, Billy Graham believed that there was a risk of us becoming immune to the real thing. This is how he says it. Many people have just enough natural religion to make them immune to the real thing. Sometimes that's true, isn't it? That we can have just enough of familiarity that we can no longer be moved by the real thing. And if that's true of you, here's what I'd say. Today is the day of salvation. Receive this truth that Jesus Christ is the son of God, that he suffered in your place for your sins, that he died for you and rose again, and that he lives to redeem everyone who would come to him. He will in no way cast you out. The way that you do that is through repentance and belief and to be loved by God, just to receive this truth that you are indeed loved by God. And that's the second and last point today. My hope is for us is that as we leave this place, that we would leave with this banner over us, that we have been loved by God. He's demonstrated it through our redemption, through his faithfulness to us, by his ongoing affections being set on us, by his delight in us. He sees us in this very moment. He sees exactly what we were made, how we were made and what we were made for. And he sees all of the purposes and intentions of our lives. And he has set his affection on everyone who would believe. And here's some signs that maybe you are not uh, in this place where you're practicing God's presence and being loved by God. If you neglect God's presence because you're nervous that maybe he's not thrilled with you, okay? The natural result of that is anxiety, exhaustion, insecurity, frustration, because all of the ways that you look at the world and see it's not right, you'll take all of that on yourself. When you come to God and allow him to love you in the ways that he's demonstrated by his presence and power, it will transform all of your anxiety and exhaustion and insecurity and frustration into thankfulness. Look, these aren't just prayers by Paul. He knew who was responsible for God's work. It transformed him from, from where he could have been anxious. It says he could not bear it any longer. And he sent word back and now he hears of God's work and he's saying, I'm thankful, God. He's full of longing and hope, holy ambition, thinking who could this people be because of God's work? And it filled him with confidence, both in God's affection and God's redemption. And so for us who believe, have you been loved by God? Not just in the historic sense that you know that Christ died for you. Have you spent any time in his presence being loved by him? I think a lot of us, our anxiety goes to show that maybe we haven't. And maybe you're questioning. Maybe you're just scared that you've worn out God's love. You've grown, God has grown weary of you. God is not like man that he should grow weary or faint. He is completely committed to all he's redeemed and rescued. He longs for you to be with him. Spurgeon puts it this way. Christ loved you before all worlds. Long ere the day star flung his ray across the darkness, before the wing of angel had flapped the unnavigated ether, before aught of creation had struggled from the womb of nothingness, God, even our God, had set his heart upon all his children. Since that time, he has, has he once swerved? Has he once turned aside, once changed? No, you who have tasted of his love and know his grace will bear me witness that he has been a certain friend in uncertain circumstances. You have often left him. 
Has he ever left you? You have had many trials and troubles. Has he ever deserted you? Has he ever turned away his heart and shut up his bowels of compassion? No, children of God. It is your solemn duty to say no and bear witness to his faithfulness. This is our solemn duty to, to be loved by God, not just to agree that some transaction happened that was epic on the cross of Jesus, but that today he would still bear the cross with us in mind and that he would still declare over us loved by God, chosen because of God's affection. So who will condemn us? Who will stand against us? Will your own conscience stand against you? Will the accusations of the enemy stand against you? Will there, any be, will there be any power that could separate you from that love? The answer to that question is found in Romans chapter 8. I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. So, when we're loved by God, our anxiety turns to thankfulness and longing. Our hope is able to be presented to him. Our confidence can be in this reality that God's affections have been set on us and our redemption is secure, not because of what we've done, but because of what he's done. And so today, we're gonna close out this time in God's word by taking communion. And every time we take it, we declare his death. And when we declare his death, we're declaring that he invites us to sit at his table. And so the natural response is, we have no right to come here. And I want to read this as a liturgy together. If you, need, if you need one of these, there's ushers that can bring you one. Before we take it, would you read this along with me? It's going to be on the screen. What right do we have to dine at the table of Jesus? Now read this aloud with me. We who believe have every right to dine at his table. What gives us this right? Ponder that for a moment. What gives us this right to take his body broken for us and his blood shed for us? What gives us the right? Say this with me. We have this right because Jesus came not for the strong, but for the weak, not for the righteous, but for sinners, not for the self-sufficient, but for those who know they need rescue. To all who are weary and need rest, to all who mourn and long for comfort, to all who feel worthless and wonder if God even cares, to all who are weak and frail and desire strength, to all who sin and need a savior. Say it aloud with me. Jesus welcomes into his table, adopts into his family, and reserves a place at his table. For he is the mighty friend of sinners the ally of his enemies, the defender of the indefensible, and the justifier of those who have no excuses left. Let's take this bread and rejoice. Christ willingly offered his body for all who would believe. We take this cup that Christ willingly shed his blood for everyone who would trust in him. Take and drink. Let's stand up and sing. My worth is not in what I own. It's in this that Christ has suffered for me.